Chapter 11 of Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains by Stella M. Francis. Chapter 11 A Man of Big Heart and Queer Notions. Christmas was a big event at Holly Hill. Holly Hill was well named. Perhaps some old patriarch a century or two back conceived the inspiration of the name while playing Santa Claus with little tots of the household and pretending to have slid down the chimney without getting a speck of soot on his bulging vestments. Perhaps he imagined, while Mother woke the children and had them peek through a crack in the door, at the white-whiskered visitor stuffing their stockings full of presents that he had tethered his prancing team of reindeer to a holly tree outside. Certainly there seemed to have been material for such imagination, for tradition said that the hill on which the first houses of the first settlement were built had at one time been richly adorned with a species of American ilex, and even now there remained here and there carefully preserved remnants of that reported original wealth of the wilderness. Whether or not this conjectural history of the settlement had anything to do with the cheerful midwinter holiday developments of the community need not be argued at length. An argument would render the truth flat and insipid if it should prove to be in accord with poetic tradition, so what's the use? In midwinter everybody just knew that Hollyhill as a child had been nursed in the snow-trimmed evergreen lap of Christmas. Not that this municipality had a corner on midwinter holiday generosity to the exclusion of all other communities. The chief outstanding fact in this relation was that the inhabitants, or those so fortunate as to be in a position to give and receive abundantly, believed Hollyhill to be the most generous Christmas town on earth, and there was nobody sufficiently interested to make a denial and follow it up with proof. Much of the credit for this condition was due to the leading man of the place, Richard P. Stanlock, president and controlling power of the Hollyhill Coal Mining Company, which owned a string of mines in the mountain district near the divisional line of two states. Besides being the leading citizen, Mr. Stanlock was the biggest man in town, because of the position to which he had risen, his ability to hold it, and the influence that went with it. What he said usually went, but his hand was not always evident. He liked to see things done, doubtless enjoyed the realization that his was the great moving power that produced results, but didn't give a fig to have anybody else know it. To his intimate friends, who were few, and to the many with whom he would pass the time of day, he was as common in word and manner as the average householder, with nothing more pretentious in life than the earning of his daily bread. But in spite of all this simplicity and personal retirement, Mr. Stanlock was a good deal of a mystery to many citizens who knew really little about him. 
or perhaps he was a mystery to these fellow townsfolk because of his modest qualities. Knowing little about him, they imagined more. Leading citizens who knew his good qualities were ever ready with a word of praise for him. But the trouble was, the needed tangible evidence of his broad philanthropy was utterly lacking. Seldom was there a visible connecting link between him and a good deed, and so the praise of his work in pulpit, press, and other public and semi-public places fell as platitudes before a considerable number of sceptics, whose favourite reply to this sort of thing was something like, Bunk. But Marion knew that it wasn't bunk. She was one of the few confidants that gained an intimate understanding of the wealthy mine-owner's character. She knew that he was the secret financial backer of an organisation of settlement workers which kept close watch on the needs of the miners and their families, many of whom were so woefully ignorant that about the only way to handle them was by appealing to their appetites their sympathies and their prejudices. She knew, too, that he had strong connections constantly at work, fostering and promoting the best of activities for advancement of the civic welfare. That Christmas was one of his secret hobbies, that it was practically impossible for this city of 40,000 inhabitants to neglect this opportunity for a revival of good fellowship and good cheer, so long as her father had his hand on the electric key of public generosity. Christmas was a blaze of glory every year in Holly Hill. Public halls, churches, and theatres were the scenes of the liveliest activities for several days and nights before and after this biggest event of the winter season. Nor was the celebration confined to the more prosperous sections of the town, but extended into the heart of the mining settlement, where Christmas tinsel and lights were lavished without consideration of cost, and nobody was allowed to pass the season without being impressively reminded as to just what turkey roast and cranberry sauce tasted like. So skilfully were these programs put into effect that seldom was a hint dropped from any source that Richard Perry Stanlock was entitled to the slightest credit for these magnificent doings. He spent Christmas at home in a quiet, unassuming way amid the family decorations of holly and mistletoe, and a vast litter of presents, oranges, apples, nuts, and candy. Marion knew that her father's greatest vanity was his secret pride in his ability to put over the biggest generosity of the year without its being traceable to him. One day a girl acquaintance of her asked her if she knew that her father spent $25,000 every year for Christmas. Marion laughed. Later she laughingly reported the query to Mr. Stanlock. Next day, this girl friend's uncle, one of the philanthropist's agents, was called in on the carpet and given a lecture on the wisdom of guarding his remarks, such as he had never before dreamed of receiving. 
Papa, the millionaire's older daughter, said to him one day, Don't you think it is foolish to keep secret all these generous things that you are doing? Why do you think it is foolish, my dear? He replied with an expression of shrewd amusement. He was certain that she would have difficulty in answering his question. Well, she began slowly, then admitted, I don't know. I'm very glad you don't know, said her father, with evident satisfaction. If you had tried to give a reason, I should have been greatly disappointed. No explanation of that suggestion could be based on anything but family pride, which is one form of vanity. No, Marion differed thoughtfully. There is one explanation based on human caution and wisdom. I am afraid that you are misunderstood by the very people whose confidence you should seek to cultivate, that is, the miners. Some of them don't like you very well. They think that you personally are a hard taskmaster, and that the attentions and relief which really come from you in times of need are bestowed on them by persons who feel that they have to help them because of your failure to do the right thing by them. Why don't you, Papa, go right among them and tell them that you are going to do everything you can for them, raise their wages, maybe, and make them love you personally? It isn't my nature, Marion, to do it that way, Mr. Stanlock replied. There is nothing in the world that would be so distasteful to me as assuming the role of a philanthropist or a hero. It spoils every man to some extent who tries it. Personal vanity is the greatest enemy that man has to guard against. I've guarded myself against it thus far successfully, I think, and I am not going to let it get me in the future if I can help it. Marion felt like saying that her father's fear of vanity might some day get him into trouble with his men, but she refrained from so expressing herself. On the occasion before us she recalled that conversation, for she realized that the strike was a result, in part, of the very misunderstanding that she had anticipated. Several clever leaders among the miners had spread the report about that Mr. Stanlock had become immensely wealthy by overworking and underpaying his men. While he caused to be circulated through various channels numerous undetailed reports of his generosity, philanthropy, and public spirit. When she invited the members of Flamingo Camp Fire to be her guests, and worked with her among the poor and hunger-suffering families of the strikers, she did not realize the seriousness of the situation with reference to the feeling of the miners toward her father. Now she felt that the condition of affairs was more than she could cope with, and from the day of her arrival home she was constantly in fear lest some dread catastrophe could befall the family, because the biggest man in Holly Hill kept himself severely fortified against the adulation of his fellow townsmen and the character-weakening influence of personal vanity. End of chapter 11